0: Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. This is our second episode in our criminal justice issue arc in which we're featuring some of the bigger issues that we see impacting the presidential election in 2020. And this is, as we called episode one of this, 99 Problems, part one. This is 99 Problems, part two, minus Sarah rapping. And its (laughs) working title is 15 going on 28, and you'll see why. And so today's episode, as Sarah mentioned in our last episode, is really one that focuses on a juvenile. So if you take a moment and think about someone, you know, maybe it's your kid, maybe it's, you know, someone, maybe it's yourself at 13, right? But you think about what you were like at 13. And did you ever make some poor choices? Uh, hasn't every teenager <laughs> in the planet? Pretty much, right? Because not only are you sort of dealing with a lot of hormones and a lot of changes, physical changes, there's emotional changes, you're trying to fit in with your peer group, because middle school is not fun. Usually you dress awkwardly, you feel like your limbs are
1: all over the place, your skin is real awesome if you're me, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, you're just trying to grow into who you think you are, right? But, you know, and I definitely, when I was a teenager, I thought I was grown, right? I thought I knew everything and I knew how to do everything. And, but at what I didn't understand was any of the consequences of that, right? Like, if I was going to act like I was, you know, 18, I didn't understand what the consequences were. Right. And I think that's it. You don't, and our brains, to be fair,
1: do not fully develop until we're 25. So keep that in mind when you're hearing all of this stuff. There's a reason car rental companies do not rent to people under 25, because your ability to deal with life is not actually comprehensively formed until you're well past your teenage years. Right.
0: So given this background. All right. So 13 years old is when a black kid in Mississippi learns he's an adult. Isaiah figured it out at the beginning of seventh grade when he got into trouble at his favorite place in town. And this is the beginning of a riveting article about the legacy of Jim Crow era laws in Mississippi, which has juveniles like Isaiah being tried at age 13 as an adult. And he's not alone. The article, which is called Bound by Statute, highlights the failings in our criminal justice system based on antiquated statutes that come from a different era, generally post-Reconstruction, post-Civil War. But nevertheless, due to their applicability today, has kept us there in that racist past. It's a great article, and we will be directly quoting from it a lot because it contains everything we love and everything we talk about, history, psychology, a human narrative, and so much more. And it speaks to a general flaw in our criminal justice system when we treat kids as an adult, especially if we're more likely to do that due to race. So you remember how I'm always talking about how, you know, my greatest fear for my kids that they won't come. And and remind them why. Right. So, you know, my kids are half black quarter Japanese, quarter white. And my biggest fear is that they will walk out this door or, you know, my husband who's black will walk out our door and not come home based solely on the color of their skin. And I guess I should add, be incarcerated or tried as an adult based on the color of their skin to this as well. So because this article and others like this aren't making me feel any better about that greatest fear, by the way. So back to Isaiah, he's 13. He's young and he's prone to all sorts of things, as you are as a teenager in the seventh grade. In the words of the article, few things are more important to a 13-year-old than impressing your friends, and few things are more difficult than impulse control. Isaiah had ADHD medicine to help him with it. So note, Isaiah had ADHD like so many other teenagers we know. But it made him sleepy. So he found a way to hide the pills under his tongue and spit them out when his mom, Felicia Hickman, wasn't looking. Hickman gave the talk a lot of black parents give, tighten up, it doesn't take much for a black kid to end up in jail. That night, she told him that he could only go to the football game, but Isaiah badly wanted to keep up with his new friends in his new hometown. So there he was at the bowling alley, tall for his age, bouncing around on spindly legs with the BB gun in his pocket. The BB guns was his older brother's, but Isaiah had taken it anyway. So he saw a white kid at the bowling alley that was four miles down the road from where he lived that they often hitchhiked to and made a terrible decision that day to try and rob him with that fake BB gun. So terrible decision that the boy gave Isaiah his iPhone because he said he didn't have anything else on him and a dollar, I think, and his phone password. And you can probably guess what happened next. When the police did stop Isaiah and his brother that night, both boys had on the same thing, boots, blue jeans, and a camouflage coat. The boy Isaiah robbed told the police they had the wrong guys. Days later, while in class, Isaiah was summoned to the office. The police were there. Can you imagine instantly being summoned to the office with the police there when you're in seventh grade? They took him into custody for questioning. He said he talked to police for two hours. Isaiah told the article's author that he was upfront about the BB gun, but that he never confessed to the robbery. But instead of going home, like he said the investigators promised, Isaiah went to the county jail. When he first walked in, someone else is getting booked, and an officer announced, he's here. The officers escorted Isaiah into solitary confinement and closed the metal door. Just stop. Yeah. Imagine your kid in school, in middle school right now. The cops took
1: him out of school, talked to him for two hours. He went to the county jail— And was put into solitary confinement.
0: Like as a mother, as a parent, as someone who knows kids, right? That's heartbreaking. You know, even if, you know, you did something wrong. I get that. Which he did. He made a really stupid decision and he did a really wrong thing. Yeah, exactly. But then how are you, if you are a juvenile, there is a reason why the law considers you different than an adult. But suddenly you're moved from your seventh grade classroom to solitary confinement at the county jail in a matter of hours. You know, if this was a one off, you could be like, that's really messed up. Wow. Yeah. But his story. No, it's not unique. In writing this article, authors Cobrag and Melissa Lewis discovered that nearly 5,000 Mississippi children have been charged as adults in the last 25 years. Three out of every four are black, like Isaiah. But this isn't new. After slavery was outlawed at the end of the Civil War, came convict leasing, when the state loaned out its black prison population to work on plantations, and build railroads. Which is pretty amazing if you think about it, because slavery's allegedly outlawed, but black prisoners are going to work on plantations, and and they're leasing them like right, like property, yeah, assets, like which was the whole point of slavery in the first place. Fascinating. But in the late eighteen hundreds. Also, state laws made no distinction between punishing children and adults. A doctor visiting prisoners on a Delta plantation described a starving 17-year-old kept in a cage lined with a bloodstained dirt floor, overflowing waste buckets, and vermin-covered walls. David Oshinsky writes in his book, Worse Than Slavery, which, I mean, if you're titling a book Worse Than Slavery… That's pretty fucking bad. By 1880, children and adolescents made up about a quarter of the prison population, according to Oshinsky. At six years old, Mary Gay was sentenced to a month in prison at six for stealing a hat. And at the age of eight, Will Evans served two years for stealing change from a store counter. Mississippi eventually ended convict leasing under national pressure in 1890. So they kind of actually stopped that form of slavery then. However, it gave way to the notorious Mississippi State Penitentiary, better known as Parchman Farm. Wait, wait, wait. And I just had this thought. 1890, right? That was 120 years ago? Almost 130 years ago. Yeah. In theory, that sounds like a long time, but oh, yeah. That's not like if you think about the span of history, right? And that period of time too, between then and now. Yeah. So even the youngest inmates at Parchman picked cotton and cultivated other cash crops for the state's profits while incurring lashings from black Annie, the coined name for a thick leather strap. Again, sounds a hell of a lot like slavery. It really does, right? Because you're picking cotton, you could be beaten. Not sure where the difference is necessarily. Jabbo Dean, who was 12, Homer Reed, who was 12, and his brother Pratt Reed was 11, of Philadelphia, Mississippi. There is a Philadelphia in Mississippi where a lot of this takes place, not to be confused with Philadelphia, not in the South, where they were all at Parchman for theft and wore black and white striped uniforms as they tilled the field. By the time Mississippi got around to making separate jails for kids in 1916, so if you think about that, that's only 100 years ago that they actually made a separate jail for kids, the governor was a known Klansman named Theodore Bilbo. He had a long political career, and in one reelection speech, he spewed the N-word nearly 30 times while condemning intermixing with black people. So, as you can tell, a proponent of diversity. Bilbo created so-called training schools, where the state could jail kids charged with breaking the law, homeless kids, abandoned kids, even kids the courts thought might one day be criminals. What the hell is that? I know. Right? So you could, if they just didn't like you, you could be put in this training school, which is effectively a jail. More than two decades later, and we're still in Mississippi, the 1940 legislature created a separate court system for kids and at the same time permitted children as young as 14 to face criminal charges in adult court. Lawmakers wanted to take it even further. In 1942, the all white body, so The entire legislature was white, wrote a bill to permit children of any age to face criminal charges in adult court. So, wow. And you know what's interesting? So, I just read this book called, it's a novel, Before We Were Yours,
1: but it talks. Oh, yeah. Have you read that? Right. It reminds me of when they're talking about this training school or this idea of adoption or like stealing kids that are deemed you know, river rats or whatever they called them, you know, that were undesirable or poor or whatever. And they were trying to rehabilitate these white kids into Mm -hmm. prominent white families, basically. You know, that was a time I feel like people were really commoditized. Children were not seen, I think, in the way that we see children now. Yeah. I mean, wasn't that the era of don't speak unless you're spoken to?
0: Well, yeah. And I I think that was, I mean, if you think about how children who don't have families are cared for now, like the public perception of that is very different. I mean, sort of the state-run orphanages or training schools or anything along that spectrum was much more prevalent in that day. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Not saying that this, you know, slavery-like
1: treatment is acceptable. I just put me in that mindset of that time as well.
0: Yeah, because it is important to keep the historical context in mind, but the historical context is largely based on trying to figure out how to keep slavery going, even when it's supposed to be outlawed. Okay, so the all-white body thought that it was cool for kids of any age to be tried as adults. But in 1942, when many of our parents were alive, the then governor, Paul Johnson Sr., vetoed this bill, although not for reasons that you would think not out of the goodness of his heart or thinking like, hey, yo, kids, probably not the same as adults. In the memo accompanying his veto, Johnson argued that the law was redundant because he had already approved $60,000, which was nearly $1 million in today's money, to fund a, quote, Negro reformatory at Oakley State Farm. In other words, there was no need to criminally prosecute younger kids when the state had a new plan in place to send black kids to Oakley. This veto was one of the only times a Mississippi lawmaker plainly stated that laws created to prosecute children were intended for black kids. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's pretty clear because he's like, no, we don't need to try kids as adults because we've got this whole system set up for black kids over here, which I've already funded. So cool. We're good because... Right. Because
1: I had a moment when you were talking. I'm like, well, what about the white kids? The point is, he says, this is for black
0: kids to go to. Wow. And it's redundant. Like we have this thing for black kids to go to. So we don't need to criminally prosecute kids generally because those kids that we were going to we want to criminally prosecute, a.k.a. black kids. We've got something for them. So Wow. Okay. But, you know, it's important to keep in mind, again, the context like Mississippi was also the state where the most known lynchings happened. And actually, I saw this photo in the article where they have the NAACP office in New York. And at that time, they would have a flag that was flying out of the window that said a lynching happened today. I mean, it is nuts. So because it was not uncommon too, and extrajudicial justice was always close by. And by that, I mean, mobs who would lynch people. And there are known stories of teenage black boys accused of rape who were chased down by angry white mobs and hung from that hanging bridge, like literally just without any trial, any conviction, anything like that. So and no clear due process or really any proof. So these were slightly modified in 1946, which permitted kids as young as 13 to face criminal prosecution as adults. So they clearly decided they needed a law. 14 was too old, we we're going to get the 13 year olds as well. And this law changed in 1946 has remained this legacy seven decades later in the form of original jurisdiction laws. So they're not unique to Mississippi. 26 states automatically put children into the adult system at the moment of arrest for certain charges. And you may want to figure out if your state is one. In Mississippi, they're called original jurisdiction laws, but other states call them statutory exclusion laws, if you're wondering about the terminology. So in Mississippi, any child over the age of 13, or I guess 13 as well, who is arrested for a crime involving a weapon goes directly into the adult system. And a weapon includes a BB gun. So in Mississippi, if a victim perceives a weapon to be real, it might as well be. So even water guns, if they're dark. Yep. If they look, if the person who the whatever fake weapon is being used on thinks it's an actual weapon, then that's enough to charge as an adult, basically.
1: I mean, I'm torn on this one because I can't even be, I can't imagine the trauma of being on the receiving end of a threat with a gun, especially as a woman, when you feel like fear for your body and all that sort of stuff. It's terrifying. You're traumatized. Like that will stick with the victim for the rest of their life. Does that mean that the person on the other side is always inherently a bad person and should be tried as an adult? And how do you make the distinction between the truly fucking evil 13, 14, 15 year olds, or whoever human beings who really should be tried as an adult, and kids who really made a stupid choice? Like there's got to be a distinction in my mind. How do you do that? I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, and I think the important point here is the statistics that we've talked about, you know, well, there's twofold things. Like, one, do you believe that a 13-year-old who points a fake gun at you should be charged as an adult, and as opposed to an 18-year-old who may have thought through the consequences more, even with a fake gun, right? And the second point is that more likely that the people who are pointing the fake guns, regardless regardless of what race they are, when they point the gun, they're going to be treated differently after that point because of their race. So I think those are the two things to keep in mind as we continue to discuss this, because I think that's an interesting question. And I think it speaks to everyone's fear of being on the other side of a weapon, right? Like you don't. And if someone, you know, is a family annihilator, right? You don't want that person just roaming around looking or a serial killer, right? But how do we treat people And do we have juvenile laws for a reason?
1: Yes. And this may take the conversation a little off topic. So rein me back in in a moment here. But what about the white kids who are showing up at schools and mowing down their classmates? Yeah. Like a lot of them die by suicide right afterwards. They don't have the courage to face consequences or I don't even know what the freaking right way to I mean, it's terrifying, Mm -hmm. you know. And say it was a 15-year-old, should they be tried in juvenile court? I mean, is it different if it's a threat versus an actual crime? I don't know. I'm just thinking this through. I have no idea what I really think. But I feel like your point about a 13-year-old versus an 18-year-old is legit. A fake weapon versus a real weapon, also legit.
0: Well, yeah. And I also think, like, if you're... And we're going to talk about this more when we go back to Isaiah. But how you're treated, does your punishment fit your crime? Because if you're mowing down like 26 kindergartners versus using a fake BB gun. Right. Well, I'm talking about like, say a white kid shows up
1: at school and is caught before they do the crime. Right. How are they being handled right now? Because I'm sure there are, and I just haven't, I can't stomach researching that right now. Right. But I'm sure there've been people who've been stopped because there are systems in place. Like there's all these hotlines at the schools and that sort of stuff. How are they being dealt with? Are they going through juvenile justice or are they being tried as
0: adults? I don't know. Well, and I guess the question is true. I don't know the answer to that. And however they're being tried, would it be different if they were black, I think would be sort of the key point. Of course. Yeah, exactly. All right. So speaking of disparate treatment, because you're black um, let's go back to Isaiah. So Isaiah, remember, in solitary confinement. So this is how Isaiah became an adult instead of finishing seventh grade. When confronted with cases such as his, so remember, he's 13, he has a BB gun, which is a fake weapon, but under Mississippi law, you're automatically tried as an adult if you're 13 or older and holding even a fake weapon. So many adults running Mississippi's criminal justice system, when they face faced with something like Isaiah, sort of throw up their hands and say they're bound by the law because of this original jurisdiction issue that we talked about before. But those laws were adopted at the height of the Jim Crow era when Black adults did not have the Protected right to vote. And an investigation by Reveal for the Center for Investigative Reporting found that police prosecutors and judges today have continued that legacy, exercising their wide discretion in a way that ultimately ends the childhood of Black kids far more often and with far greater severity. So when Isaiah first arrived at the Neshoba County Jail, he couldn't eat. He was hungry, but it was like he didn't have any taste buds. Under federal law, kids can't be housed with adults in prison, so he was placed into solitary confinement. I mean, can you imagine, again, like you're in a prison now that's designed for adults, but because you can't be around adults, you're by yourself, that's it. To pass the time he slept until he couldn't, often resting on his low concrete slab of a bed through the first two meals of the day until an officer came by to guilt him for sleeping so late. Sometimes he woke up merely to get the breakfast tray and save it for when he got bored with sleeping. After the odor of mass-produced eggs began to fill his cell, the 13-year-old timed his wake-ups to the arrival of the lunch tray. He looked forward to the bag of chips.
1: Imagine that scenario. This is not a thriving child who's being rehabilitated for making a really stupid choice, right? No, he's in solitary. Right. It messes with your brain. Solitary at any age can lead to parts of your brain, the regions of your brain, to shrink including the areas that control your memory and your anxiety. So if you're in sustained isolation for a long period of time, and now picture yourself right now in your life. Imagine if you went to your apartment and didn't see anybody for a week, didn't talk to anybody, had no TV, had no cell phone or anything. Imagine being in that scenario when you still had the option to get around and leave whenever you want to. That would still suck. So days and days and days of sustained isolation can hinder young people whose brains, like I said before, continue to develop and develop things like impulse control into your 20s. I took a report from the ACLU here because it was saying everything I wanted it to say. Because their brains are still developing... Children are highly susceptible to the prolonged psychological stress that comes from being isolated in prisons and in jails. What happens to your brain with that stress is that it stops development in areas like the prefrontal cortex, which govern impulse control, right? And it causes irreparable damage. If you miss that time of growth, it's not like you catch up later on. And impulse control is exactly what 13-year-olds don't have. And now he's never going to have a chance to develop it because he was put into solitary confinement. Basically, children subjected to solitary confinement are forced into a hole so deep they may never be able to climb out. So recognizing this, finally, the courts concluded that juvenile solitary confinement is torture. Literally, they classified it as torture and impermissible except as necessary to prevent physical harm. And so in 2016... Right, three years ago, the Department of Justice ended the practice of allowing the use of solitary confinement for juveniles in the custody of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And you talked to us, Misasha, about like the different rankings of incarceration and that sort of stuff. So, for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, juveniles are not allowed to be in solitary. Now, when you break it down to the state level, at least 21 states have also prohibited the use of solitary confinement to discipline juveniles because, you know, some states have said it violates the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Here are the states that have no limits on the use of solitary for juveniles. Ready? Alabama, Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Texas, and Wyoming. So raise your hand if you live in any of those states or you know anybody who lives in those states. Me, I know people who live there. And think about the kids that you know there, just for a moment. If those kids do something stupid, they could end up in solitary confinement but basically solitary confinement is ineffective. There's no evidence that solitary confinement improves behavior. And there is way tons of evidence that it hurts kids. So administrators of these facilities do recommend changing the culture and limit the use of solitary instances unless they're like in danger, right? And they need to be isolated. So, but it's still happening. And just as a total side note, I want to do an asterisk here about adults. They're was a National Commission on Correctional Healthcare. This is like an influential organization that creates guidelines and offers healthcare advice for correctional facilities. They basically said even for adults, solitary confinement for greater than 15 consecutive days is cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment and harmful to an individual's health. And they also said, obviously, for juveniles and mentally ill individuals, they should be excluded from solitary confinement. But despite all of this, for adults... Solitary confinement is still happening. There's approximately 67,000 prisoners placed in these
0: conditions in the United States and Canada
1: at any given time.
0: That's crazy. I mean, I think that example that you gave about, you know, being in your apartment for a week, right, without talking to anyone, without any sort of stimulation, right, that's coming at you. As an adult, that's difficult. As a child, that seems like unbearable,
1: You'd feel lost. How much do we talk on this show about how relationships are the biggest predictor of your long-term health and happiness and the need for humans to be seen and connected? It is psychological torture for adults, let alone for children who are still growing and who desperately need that love and approval to become the best version of who they can be.
0: So back to Isaiah, because now he's been in solitary for eight days and after those 8 days Felicia Hickman his mom put up her property as collateral for bail to get him out so Isaiah was free to go until his next court date and a side note this she was fortunate in being able to do this because a lot of times making not being able to make bail is a big huge issue and a socioeconomic one that disproportionately affects minorities. So Isaiah was able to make bail because of his mother putting up her property, but nothing went back to normal. His middle school had kicked him out because that case involved a classmate. So basically he can't go to school and he's out he's not sure what's going to happen right because he's free until his next court date but who knows what's going to happen then so if you're a 13 year old you've been in solitary for eight days you know that your court date is coming at some point you can't go to school like it's not like there are a lot of avenues for you to go on that don't involve some form of trouble because also remember he was in solitary for eight days he's not taking his adhd meds either so he's in a world that he can't handle
1: Yeah. I mean, how many people do you know out there who keep their teenager – who are really doing their best for their kids and want to keep them out of trouble so they're going to school full day and they have, like, activities out the wazoo because parents adopt the, quote, let's keep them busy so they stay out of trouble mindset? Yeah. This kid has all freaking day and night. Like, I mean,
0: once you have that mindset, are you going to make it home for curfew? Right. No. Well, and he's – Let's go back because we mentioned this early on, but he is new to this town. Like the his mother had remarried and moved the family to Philadelphia, Mississippi, just before the start of the 2017 school year, which is the school year that he was in when he was kicked out of school. So, as a side note, if you know that there is a Philadelphia in Mississippi, it's likely because of what happened on Father's Day, 1964, when the KKK and law enforcement officials, some of them one and the same, killed three civil rights workers there. And the murders gripped the nation, leading to the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964 and inspiring the 1988 movie Mississippi Burning. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. So this is a town that has a lot of history. Not so good if you're not white. So and, you know, as I guess probably a surprise to no one, in February 2018, Isaiah's few short months of freedom in Philadelphia came to an end, just as his mother had warned. He was arrested again, this time for trying to steal from used car dealerships, because remember, he has nothing to do all day long. He's 13. And that's enough, right? Like what? And you're 13 with nothing to do. Yeah. How many people are like, let me start a business? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. Let me do some online courses, especially if you don't have, maybe you don't even have the capabilities to be online. So normally in this arrest where he's stealing from used car dealerships, normally the charges would be handled for this in a youth court. But he was in limbo in the system because he's treated neither as a child because he's got this other issue happen that was an adult charge, nor fully without a conviction as an adult. So guess where he goes? He went back to the county jail just in time for his 14th birthday.
1: God, that's heartbreaking.
0: So- And, you know, there's a quote from his mother that I read, and then it was heartbreaking because it resonated, right? And I think it resonates with mothers when you see this and you see the effect that it is having on your child. She felt like she'd lost control. She says, I felt that he wasn't mine anymore. He belonged to them, she said. I felt like they done took him and it ain't nothing else I could do about it. I just felt like giving up. So now Isaiah's options for getting out of jail had narrowed to one. Under original jurisdiction, defense lawyers can ask a judge to transfer a case to youth court where proceedings are sealed from the public, and the maximum punishment is juvenile hall, which is an imperfect alternative, but it's still far less brutal than any of the adult options. And not all lawyers do this. In part, the law says some kids don't qualify. Kids over 15 years old charged with gun crimes, and kids who have been convicted at an adult court can't transfer to youth court. Isaiah was eligible, though he waited in county jail for five months at age 14, before his court-appointed lawyer, Jess Smith, filed such a motion. In July 2018, Smith took the transfer motion to court. He told the judge that his client, quote, doesn't have the cognitive skills or development to act like an adult, and he shouldn't be tried for one in this case. There is no way to track how often these motions get filed without going through all the court files of the nearly 5,000 kids, remember, who've been charged as adults in Mississippi. Most of these records are not online, or only accessible in person. But of the 72 kids in the county booked into the same jail as juveniles, 26 were tried as an adult, just like Isaiah. And Isaiah's case was the only one with a transfer motion filed. So the entire hearing took eight minutes, including Judge Duncan's concise ruling. Y'all haven't given me much to go on, he told the attorneys. What I do know in its wisdom, the legislature made armed robbery when committed by somebody of his age, an adult offense, Duncan said. He's to be treated like as an adult, and I guess we could debate whether or not that's a wise policy or not, but like it or not, that's the way it is.
1: Motion overruled. Wow, right? So, eight minutes. Nope. These are the laws. So, laws are wise, and we're going to just go with what they have to say. Yes. Yeah. So, back at the jail, knowing that this transfer motion was being filed, Isaiah thought he was getting out. No one had taken him to the hearings or explained what it meant. And he had said his goodbyes and was waiting at the door with his things ready to leave.
0: Uh, Isn't that heartbreaking, though? Like, you can see that. You can...
1: Oh, yeah. this kid, he didn't know what was going on. Yeah. He was kicking at the door and he said, Man, I was supposed to be going home today, he yelled to the guards. And according to the article, this was Isaiah's darkest night. So fast forward, summer's now giving way to fall. Isaiah's mind was haunted by how much childhood he had missed. And he said, this is a lot of time that's gone and passed by, and I can't get it back. It was just making me want to turn up. So the racial disparity among children in the adult system, it turns out, is even worse than it is for grownups. Census data shows that black and white kids in Mississippi match up nearly one for one in like the free world, right outside the jail cells. But of the kids charged as adults who have gone before a Mississippi judge in the last 25 years, nearly 75% are black. While boys make up most of the system, the racial disparity among Mississippi girls in the system is also stunning. 60% of the girls are black. Now, of that, less than 4% of the cases involve murder or rape, right? What you think are, like, really bad offensive crimes. Most stem from a handful of charges. Drug use, burglary, larceny. Okay, armed robbery is not great either. But some of these cases involve serious incidents, but not all of them are, like, inherently Violent things that personally make me think, okay, maybe that's bad enough. You've made like a serious enough misjudgment that you should be tried as an adult.
0: Yeah. Paloma Wu, who's a senior staff attorney at RBUDS, the Southern Poverty Law Center, said it's very easy for children to end up in the adult system with serious charges, even when the most harm comes from property damage. So think about that. You're not actually hurting anyone. There is damage to property. They're not accused of having hurt a soul and they're in adult court, Wu said. You would not wish on your greatest enemy to be a child in a situation that these kids are in. And think about that. I mean, that is a real bad situation for this, you know, for adults, let alone a child. Black children also serve significantly longer sentences than white children in the adult system and the article's analysis found. Cases involving breaking and entering, car theft, and grand larceny, all considered property crimes because remember it's a house or a car or theft of property, result in five year sentences across the board. But white kids are only serving a year for these crimes while black kids serve two on average. So that's double the time roughly. Even when given longer sentences, white kids get out sooner. For example, for crimes involving weapons and explosives, white kids were sentenced to eight years on average while black kids got five years. However, white kids ended up serving 366 days, so slightly like a day over a year, of those sentences on average. Black kids, meanwhile, served three years. White kids are also over twice as likely to get a plea bargain that's known as a non-adjudication of guilt. So that's when a judge acting on a prosecutor's recommendation, so that has to come from the prosecutor to the judge, will withhold ruling on a guilty plea if the child completes a program of good behavior. So basically, it's like a way of sort of expunging your guilt or crime. Right. With rehab versus jail, effectively, right? Like you're not. Yeah, no. And the option and what the statistic is saying is that white kids get that option way more often, at least twice as often as black kids do.
1: Man, I mean, I'm shocked. And the disparities in the system shocked Robbie Luckett, who's a Jackson State University history professor. But he did say in the context of history, they're not surprising. And he said that Judge Mark Duncan's comment, you know, when he basically gave him an eight minute Hearing and said, no, it's not overturned, about the wisdom of the legislature showcases a caustic irony. Robbie Luckett said, you have the system of white supremacy so deeply ingrained that particularly the powerful white elite of this state can make pronouncement like this and just assume that they're not being racist. The upshot of all this is that Isaiah spent four more months in and out of solitary confinement, at times illegally being housed with the adults into jail, before getting another chance at freedom, which was a second transfer motion. Everything about this second transfer motion at the court date on November 13th, 2018, so just about a year ago, was different from the start. This time, two of Isaiah's seventh grade teachers had sworn in affidavits that their former student did not have the mental maturity to understand the consequences of his actions, nor to comprehend right from wrong. This time, his mother testified, and Judge Duncan, presiding again, said he would, quote, take a chance on Isaiah just once. His case was heading to youth court. Over the last 25 years, state records show only 40 kids before Isaiah had gotten their cases sent to a lower court.
0: It's kind of crazy. And you also you think about that court date, you know, that's basically sort of a year of the process in which Isaiah put spent a lot of that time in the county jail. And
1: not just there in solitary confinement.
0: Right, right. Or illegally being housed with adults, either option being terrible. So the DA in the case, who's the guy who's the prosecutor, Stephen Kilgore, agreed to be interviewed several times for the article that we've been talking about. And the author asked Kilgore why he didn't opt out of prosecuting Isaiah, as prosecutors have done in over 500 cases involving kids in Mississippi since 1994. Because remember, there is a certain role that law enforcement and the courts have together in deciding who to prosecute. Kilgore said he couldn't do this for Isaiah because he doesn't believe in declining to prosecute on the front end unless a victim makes the request. Now, that's my rule, Kilgore says. That's not a state rule or anything else. And so hold on. So unless the victim requests, so meaning the white
1: kid whose iPhone and password were stolen, would have to say, please don't prosecute.
0: Yeah. Otherwise, he's going to do it as a default. So overall, most prosecutors align with Kilgore. However, when district attorneys in Mississippi do decline to prosecute, kids and totally release them from the adult system. Our investigation, the investigation, the article found that they give white children the opportunity 26% more often than black children. As Kilgore sees it, it's not his job to make laws like original jurisdiction just to enforce them until the Supreme Court says something is unconstitutional. Them's the rules. And the author of the article showed Kilgore their data analysis reflecting how the actions of prosecutors and other officials in Mississippi continued a long legacy of disparate treatment of black kids in the adult system. He was surprised to see such a high amount of black kids in the adult system over time, even in his own district. But he put the blame on his predecessors. It's a different community that we grew up in as opposed to our fathers, said Kilgore, who was 38 at the time. So he's roughly around the same age now. It's hard to grow up in Mississippi in the 1950s and still be fair. And I think that's interesting because he's saying, you know, it's the fairness of our forefathers, right, or the lack of fairness because you grew up in a highly divided Mississippi. But yet we're not going to try and fix the laws. We're just going to continue to enforce them. Kilgore says he doesn't let race factor into how he sees defendants and he's made it a point to hire younger prosecutors. He thinks this next generation will change things, but there are no non-white prosecutors in his office. You know, there aren't separate water fountains anymore, Kilgore said, you know, people aren't openly treated differently. It's better now than it was when I was growing up. I mean, I'm still aware of how things were. There's still lots of overt racism, but I think that is getting better.
1: I mean, we've talked about this in our various interviews with people too, this idea of overt racism versus microaggressions and this sense of disparity and unequal treatment that's more subtle. And when we've interviewed people, people have said overt racism is almost on the receiving end, easier to handle because you can just go, ah, okay, I'm out. I'm not going to talk to people like this anymore. And it's this mindset that Kilgore's talking about being like, well, it's not overt anymore, you know, or it's getting better. It's just morphing. yeah. And that doesn't mean that it's necessarily easier to tolerate,
0: well, especially if he's saying like it is not overt. It's more hidden, and I'm trying to do these things to fix it. But if he's not hiring minority prosecutors, for example, this system is going to continue to perpetuate like the because we still have a divide in who's enforcing the laws and who's making the laws and who's on the other end of that largely. That's interesting. So those laws, I mean,
1: they need to change. And I'm so excited to talk to you about what the president can do, what Congress needs to do, what the how the court systems can address stuff like this, right? Yeah. Now, nationwide, the analysis shows that far fewer kids are being charged as adults now than they were 25 years ago. But the racial discrepancies have not gone away. Black kids still make up the overwhelming majority of children in the adult system, a rate that is way too high. In the last five years, it's been closer to 88%. It's nuts. Right? So when Isaiah was finally released, there are conditions of parole that he has to meet. His parole requires him to be in school, which he can't wait to go back to, but it's proving to be complicated because he's too young to enroll in GED classes. And the court's still trying to work out a solution for where Isaiah will go to learn and what grade level he'd enter, right? Because if he picks up where he left off, he's now going to be 16 and he'd be in the seventh grade, which seems a little awkward. Not fair, right? But school, like we've said, and that structure would be a step towards normalcy. And Isaiah thinks it might make him feel young again, like how he feels when he's home with family, eating pizza, listening to old school music, daydreaming about being a rapper or a mechanic with a barbershop side hustle, imagining adulthood while once again being a kid. But whenever he faces the world, right, where adults in his community are all but waiting for him to mess up again he feels like the adult he's been characterized as since he was first time charged with armed robbery. He said, I'm still
0: like 15. And I feel like I'm about 28. Mm. That last part is really the heartbreaking part, I think. And that's why we called this episode 15 going on 28. Because, you know, as we started talking about you think about what you did as a kid. And while yes, like Isaiah did something that was stupid and wrong, he robbed a kid with a BB gun. But Should he have been tried as an adult for that? And for the other kids who committed, you know, maybe non-person offenses, property offenses, like, should they also be tried as adults? And then that goes to bigger questions, sort of, what are the role of attorneys in this instance? What's the role of the DA, the judges, the lawmakers? Because everyone seems to, you know, from the words of the judge or from the words of the DA, everyone seems to want to focus and put the blame on the people who came before us, right, which I think is a common sort of human response, which is correct in some ways, because they were the ones who made the laws. But if you're not working to fix the laws to fix the original jurisdiction, and those issues where you can clearly see those flaws, are you complicit in some way, right? And that's, I think, one of those questions that we keep asking, and we should be asking, when we think about personal responsibility in making change. So... Please tune in next week for our thoughts about some of the key issues relating to the 2020 election surrounding criminal justice, which, you know, we've touched on some of them, but we'll be going into sort of some other overarching ones, as well as what Sarah mentioned the power of the president versus what the president needs Congress to help with in terms of enacting reforms along this front. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us.
1: And if you want any more information, go to our website at DearWhiteWomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups and all our social media links from there. So you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer.